before we get started tonight, I want to invite you to just bow your head and close your eyes um, and, and really ask the Lord to um, quiet your heart um, and to prepare your heart to receive his word. Um, I know that at this point in the semester, things are getting probably somewhat hectic um, and there's a lot of things going on. So I want to invite you, I'm just going to give you a couple seconds to do that and then I'll, I'll, um, I'll close this in prayer. Father, uh, you know that we are prone to wander. You know the, the struggle that we each have with sin, and yet you still love us. God, when we are prone to wander, you are not. You stay steady. You stay right with us. And so God, tonight, um, with, with this passage of your word, pour deeply into our souls a word of encouragement. God, as we get a glimpse into the reality of the struggle of sin in the life of the believer. God, we love you. We thank you for Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So, do you think it's okay to struggle with sin? I mean, as a, as a Christian, or even as someone who's not yet a Christian, and if it is okay to struggle with sin, how much? Like, where's the line? Is there a line? Can you sin all that you want and still be a Christian? Or is there, just, I mean, is there just kind of a little, you're allowed, a, you know, a couple of sins a day, but that's it? You know, I think that we, whether we ask ourselves that, those kind of questions consciously or subconsciously, they're there. In the back of our minds, we're, we're, we're kind of, we, I think at times, I feel like I'm kind of walking on eggshells. Like, was, is that, was that the line that I just crossed and like, there's going to be a lightning bolt that comes down and I'm like, and I die and then like everybody knows that I'm died because I sinned, you know, I mean, as silly as that might sound, I mean, that thought has maybe crossed some of your minds before. You're like, did, was that the line? Did I just cross the line that I actually maybe just forfeited my own salvation? That I, maybe did I just do something to... Reverse the whole thing. And, you know, because of this, I think many of us feel the temptation to fake, to put up these walls, to over time become plastic. Um, because we, we, have, we, we believe to some level that, yeah, there, there is a line that, we can, that, that if we cross, God will change his mind about us. And that as Christians, we shouldn't struggle with sin. Actually, you know, what we tell ourselves is that the badge of Christian maturity is perfection. And we should brag about that. I had a professor in college who actually told our class a number of times, you know, that he would, he would go full days, 24-hour periods without sinning. And I'm just thinking, like, is that a thing? Like, can, can anybody do that? Like... Or, or is that, are you lying and now you just like, you for sure sinned today because that's a lie. Um, and, and I remember thinking like, that's, that just sounds wrong. But then I remember there's a part of my heart that condemned me and said, no, that's right. 
That, that, that is right. And you should be able to get to that point. And you're not, so there's something wrong with you. Well, I wouldn't ever say this to my professor to his face, and I doubt he's ever going to listen to this sermon, um, but he's wrong. He, he's dead wrong. And not because of just what I think, but because of what um, Romans 7, what the Apostle Paul, what we enter into with Paul, he, I mean, if anybody's a mature Christian, it's the Apostle Paul, right? And what do you see with Paul? He's articulating a deeper struggle with sin than probably any of us articulate in ourselves. That gives us comfort. That in and of itself is comfort to us that the badge of Christian maturity isn't sinless perfection. It's complete dependence on Jesus. That is what it means to mature as a Christian. And so we see here in Romans 7 that that the Apostle Paul, he felt stuck in sin, entangled in it. And some of you tonight, probably most of you tonight, to some degree, feel stuck in some sort of rebellious act or rebellious attitude. And maybe even so much so that you maybe even second-guessed showing up tonight to church. Like, I'm just, I just need to stay home. I don't need to, I'm not worthy to come to be with God's people and to to worship. and, um, And I'm glad you're here if that's you, because that's not the case. That is not the case at all. What this passage brings to us is two options for deliverance from this intense struggle with sin that followers of Jesus experience and live in. We either can look to the law or look to Christ. And what this passage tells us is that those who look to the law find only constant frustration and infinite condemnation. That, that's, it, that's, if you want to be delivered from your sense of guiltiness and wrongness by trying to obey more, you actually only get more of what you're trying to get out of in the first place. But when we look to Christ, we find triumph, ultimate freedom. And so in this passage, I want to ask three questions as we work through it. Three questions. The first is, why do you struggle with sin? What is it that makes you struggle with sin? Because if you're honest with yourself, you do. So why do you struggle with sin? Look with me in verse 7 of Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. So he's asking this question. He's saying, he's coming right out of chapter 6 and saying, okay, so if the law, if, if what it does is if it arouses sinful passions in us, does that mean that by nature the law is bad? And when he's talking about the law, he's talking about God's prohibitions and God's rules for his people to live as he would have them live in the world. So that, is that, is that sin? Is it bad? And he says, no, it's not. He says, what's bad is our sin. So listen to this. He says, yet... If I had not known, or sorry, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So he says, actually, okay, so the law, it does arouse sinful passions. But that's actually a good thing. Because actually, the worst place to be as a human and as a Christian is in denial and blindness. Thinking that you don't have a problem. Or just being completely unaware that you do have Things going on in your heart that are rebellious. Which this is right where some of you 
in this room might be tonight. That you're, that you're thinking, okay, this, this passage literally has nothing to do with me because I don't, I'm not struggling with sin right now. Like, I can't think of something. You know, I've, there's been times in my life where, I, where you know, someone's asked, so what do you, you know, get your accountability going and what are you struggling with? And I'm like, I don't, I, don't, I can't think of anything. I'm doing pretty good, I think. So like, isn't that good? Like, should we, isn't that what we want? And I, I don't, I don't necessarily think so. Not that God doesn't want us to obey, but that that is not necessarily the goal, the end goal. And that does not mean necessarily that we're on the right track. I actually think that that actually might be evidence that you're on the wrong track. If you, if you, if you don't see anything, if you're thinking about, you know, if you're asking God to show you your sin and you don't see any, or if you're not even asking God, I think, you know, sometimes it just comes down to, you know, we don't feel a struggle with sin because we're just lazy, spiritually lazy. Like, you know, it's just, it's busy. It's, you know, it's coming to the end of the semester and I've got a million things to do. And the last thing I want to do is wake up early and pray and ask God to search my heart and know me. And it's just like, that's just not, that's not on my list of things to do. And so it's just, there's no energy there to do that. Or I think also sometimes we can miss uh, the struggle with sin and feel like we're not, that it's not there because we diminish our sin by looking at our friends who are doing way worse things than we are, right? We're, we're looking at our friends and like, well, if you only knew my roommate, he's crazy. She gets drunk every weekend. You know, he's having sex with everybody. If you only knew them, and it's like, you would, you would understand why I don't see struggle because I'm not, I mean, I'm, doing, I'm not doing anything that bad, right? I mean, look at these people. So I think we get diminished sin. I think we get lazy and what that leads to is we get desensitized. So I can tell you right now, if you don't, if nothing's coming to your mind of, of, of some way in which you're struggling to obey God, you, to some degree, you are desensitized. And so I would invite you to beg God to show you, to give you, to, to enlighten the eyes of your heart, to be able to see the true state of who you are and of who he is. Because this all flows out of the fact that Paul says, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't even known that I, that I was sinning. He goes on to say that, for I would not have known what it is to covet. So he's talking specifically. He goes from general law to specific, very specific. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What's interesting about this particular commandment, it's the last of the Ten Commandments. It's the only one that deals specifically with the inward person. The inward part of you. So he's thinking, okay, you know, I mean, Paul grew up with the law from, from the time he was a little kid. Much like many of us, we've grown up with this, we've heard it. We think, okay, and so if we see it as just, that's a nice set of rules that I should obey and I'm doing pretty good. It's just external stuff. Then I can check that off and I'm good. But he said, the second that I came to see that actually the whole point of it is God, he does care about our external, how we're living, the fruit that we're producing, but he also cares, and maybe even more so, about the inward person of our heart. And so he says, when he finally realized that he was coveting, and what coveting is, is, is failing to love God enough to be content with God. It's saying, I want something more. God, you're not enough. You might not say it that way, but deep down you feel that way. You're like, I, I want more beauty. I want more approval. I want more fame. I want more attention. I want more glory. And you're not, you're, you're not enough. 
You're not giving me enough. You're not providing enough. You aren't enough in those ways. And so I, I want to go after other things to get that. So the first reason that we struggle with sin is that the law reveals our sin. And this is why the law, all that we have in scripture of God's word to us flowing from his very character and person is it's good. Paul says that it's good, it's holy, it's righteous, it's just. Why? Because it reveals our sin to us. And without it, you wouldn't know that you were a sinner. And if you didn't know you were a sinner, you wouldn't know that you need Jesus. The only way that you feel that you need Jesus is because you feel your sin and you know your sin. But not only this, 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 it goes further. It gets even thicker and stickier. He goes on to say that the law not only reveals our sin, but it entices us to sin. And it actually aggravates our sin. So um, he says this in, um, in verse 8. He says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So as soon as I heard that, and as soon as I realized that that's wrong, all of a sudden, it started popping up everywhere. I mean, it's like, you know, you think about, you tell a kid not to put his hand in the cookie jar. What is he going to do? He's going to put his hand in the cookie jar. Why? Because he was told not to. Why did that make him want to do it? Because he was told not to. Because as humans, we don't like to be told what to do. N- nobody in this room likes to be told what to do. I don't, you know. Um, why don't we? Why do we have such an aversion to this sort of authority that, that can tell me what to, what to do and what not to do? Well, it's because you and I, we want to play God. You want, I mean, that, that, that is the heart of every single sin from the smallest white lie to the most heinous, grievous sin or rebellion is you want to be God. I mean, that, that's, it's the echoes of the fall ringing through the rest of history. The whisper of the certain that, the serpent that you can be like God. Take this fruit, eat it. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. You'll be on the throne. You'll receive the glory. You'll be worshiped. And so the law comes and bucks against that and says, no, you are not God. The real God actually is telling you what to do and what not to do. Augustine, in his uh, book, The The Confessions, talks about how when he was a kid, that he and some friends went to this um, this grove of of, uh, fruit trees, and there were some pear trees. And he talks about how he went over to this pear tree, and it was owned by a person. It wasn't just like wild pear trees. This This was somebody's tree, and he goes over there, and he steals a couple of pears, And then he's reflecting on it and he's saying, I didn't steal the pears because I was hungry. I stole the pears because I wanted to feel the rush of doing something illegal. He just wanted to rebel to rebel. And he just did it because he knew he wasn't really supposed to do it. So what are the things for you and for I? What are the things for you? What are the ways in which you're rebelling just for the sake of rebelling? Like, you don't even have a good reason. You're just doing it because it's forbidden. And that's why I'm doing it, because I shouldn't. And so I want to peek around the corner and go over there, because somebody said not to go over there. So so the law reveals our sin, and the law 
entices our sin and aggravates our sin. And the language here shows us that it's actually sin doing that. Sin is taking something that is good and using it for evil. It's like a scalpel, a surgeon's scalpel, a little knife. It's an instrument of life. It's meant to cut you, to heal you. But that very scalpel can also be used to cut you, to wound you. That knife can be taken and used for a different purpose. That's what sin does. It takes the law, which is good. It has a good purpose to say, wake up, people. You're sinners, but God's doing something about it. And then it takes it, and then it aggravates your sin and makes you do even more sin. And then as we'll see here in a second, it does even more than that. So sin takes an instrument of life and uses it as an instrument of death. Another instance of this would be like in Deuteronomy. When, uh, when God commanded Israel to not boil a goat in its mother's milk. Mother's milk. That's an instrument of life. Nourishment. It says don't use that for an instrument of death. And yet that is what we allow sin to do with the law. We allow it to take that which is good and use it to wound us. And so many of you feel wounded by God's commands. You don't, you don't see them as good. You don't see them as whole. You, you feel hurt by them because you, you constantly fall short. Because you constantly uh, can't live up to them. But listen closely to this. Listen closely. One commentator put it this way. The law came to produce in our souls a sense of guilt for our sin. That's the purpose of the law, to, to, in our souls, produce a sense of guilt that would not be there if there were no law. The awareness of guilt was to lead us to fall on the grace of God. So it was meant to show you your guilt and then make you fall on the grace of God. The problem is that we allow sin to manipulate the law and to continue producing in us a sense of guilt even when we have received the grace of God. Look with me at verse 11. Teases that out. It says this, for sin, seizing the opportunity. Okay, so again, sin is, seize this opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Sin deceived me. It tricked me. It promised something pleasurable and life-giving, and it was a sham. And it ended up lead, leading me off of a cliff. It killed me. And this is, this is what we can often allow the law to do, is to be something that is actually meant to show us our sin, then make us fall on the grace, the free grace of God for us through Christ, and actually be something that when we do fall into sin, we allow sin to then use the law and to condemn us even more. I mean, that, I mean, I haven't met, I've really not met any Christian, including myself, who to some degree doesn't struggle with feeling, just walking around feeling condemned. Like I'm not doing enough. I should be doing more. Or I'm doing too much bad, you know. To some degree, there, there is that, that sense of condemnation. And we're, we allow sin to kill us with the law rather than allowing it to be an instrument to cut us, to actually heal us. We allow it to stab us, to wound us, to make us bleed out and to become weak. 
So why do we struggle with sin? It's because the law reveals our sin. And then the law then, uh, it then gets aggravated. And then sin, it, be, it becomes like our wheel, it's just like our wheels are spinning in the mud. So we realize what we're supposed to do and we can't do it. And then we don't do it. And then the law makes us bad for feeling that we didn't do it. And it's just over and over and over and over again. We're stuck in this, this cycle, just spinning our wheels. And so what we have to do is we have to discipline our inner self. Paul's going to talk about his inner self here in a little bit. We have to discipline our inner self to fight the false claims of sin. We have to fight the false claims of sin with the true claims of Christ. And this is where right after this passage, this is where Paul jumps in the very beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He says, me, the person who feels constantly condemned because I keep not doing what I'm supposed to do and I keep doing what I'm not supposed to do, I do feel condemned. But what I know to be true is that there isn't any condemnation. There is none. And so there's, there's a war going on in your heart, in your soul, every day. And the only thing that you can do, because this is, this is a spiritual, invisible war going on, is to fight on the turf of your own heart with the claims of Christ that you are not condemned, that you are freely forgiven and loved by God because of Jesus. So the second question Why do you struggle with sin? The second question is, how intense is your struggle with sin? How intense is our struggle with sin? Well, what we'll see here is that it's it's so intense that we feel at times completely torn in two. You know what I'm talking about. If If you're addicted to something right now, if you're addicted to pornography or if you're addicted to um, alcohol or anything, I mean, any sin, I mean, any, if there's some sort of addiction going on, or if you have had that, or if you are getting sucked into that, you know what I'm talking about. And, you know, even if there's not one of those kind of big red light things going on, we're all addicted to sin to some degree. And so we feel torn and shattered and broken. But this actually is a good thing. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. So I remember a couple years back, uh, we, we go to the beach pretty much every summer, uh, Myrtle Beach in South Carolina. Uh, we try to not go during biker week, uh, so we try to avoid that week, but sometimes we get stuck in it. And but anyways, we went this one year, and it was not biker week. And we, my younger brother, my older brother, and I, we wanted to go kayaking in the ocean. And I don't know if you've ever been kayaking in the ocean. Um, we had not, and so but there was three of us. And so to save money, we got a one-seater and then a two-seater. And so my little brother was in the one-seater, and then it was my older brother and I in the two-seater. And I was in the front of the two-seater. My older brother was in the back. And so we, we get to the rental place. We get our kayaks up on the truck, and we drive down to the shore. 
put them in the water, and it's like kind of a guided tour, but not really. And so there was a guide there, and so he led us over to do the most uh, embarrassing, embarrassingly white person thing you could ever do, geocache, uh, on this other, on this island right across. And I mean, it's just like embarrassing. And I was like, why do we do that? Um, it's so corny. Um, but we, we wanted to geocache, and so we, we got out there. And so we, it's not very far out, maybe, you know, maybe, I don't know, 50 yards or something, not that far. And so we're paddling, and uh, my little brother's in front because he's, he's in a one-seater, and he's like skinnier than both of us are. And so he's just scooting right along. He actually at one point was literally doing circles around us. And uh, so we're going, my, my older brother and I are going a lot slower. And so, but I remember thinking like at one point, you know, this feels way harder than it should be. Uh, and I look back, and he like, my older brother, no joke, actually had his paddle just sitting on the kayak. And I was thinking like, what's going on here, man? Like, I, you know, I realize you're not doing anything about there just because I can't see you. And so anyway, so we finally get over there. We get to the geocache and there's like a Pink Floyd t-shirt in there. We left it and got in our kayaks and we decided to uh, head for, I don't know what it's called. It's like the grass that grows up in like lakes and the ocean when it's like kind of low. I don't know what it's called. Uh, not seaweed. It's just the, looks like big blades of grass. Anyways, so we saw this, this section of big blades of grass and it like looked like a stop and it looked like a maze uh in there and so we're like we thought it'd be a good idea to go into it in our kayaks because we thought we could go through it find our way out and so anyways we get into it and um you know we're like man this is it we start we're going the other way and so like i felt like man this is pretty good we're moving pretty quick we get in there and we turn a corner and we hit a dead end and so it was like gotten pretty narrow my little brother could turn around but just barely because his kayak was shorter my older brother and i could not so we hop out of the kayak and land on the floor and it's you know that you feel like you're walking on like metal shards because of these broken like you know plants down there and so so we're turning our thing around and then I try to get in and then he's holding it but I can't get in and so then I try to hold it and he tries to get in but he can't and so we just finally give up and we turn it around and we just hold it and we start walking and what we were doing though is we were walking against the current and my little brother actually was who was going really quick when he turned around actually was just like in the same spot like he was just he wasn't moving backwards but he also wasn't going forwards he was just fighting the current the whole time he finally gets a little bit of momentum going and he speeds off and we can't even see him anymore. And my brother and I are just walking like every step, like jabbing our feet with these metal shards of grass and, um, and you know, just slowly making our way. And I kid you not, at one point, literally flying shrimp came out of the way, a school of flying shrimp, I'm not kidding, came out and were flying at us, pelting us in the face, getting in our kayak. And then they go away and then it starts raining and then it stopped raining. And we finally got up to the shore after like fighting the current. And later that day, I came to find out my brother, uh, this half of his body was actually like shutting down because he had, he was getting Bell's palsy that day. And so um, that's why he wasn't doing, you know, he wasn't helping me. I see all that to say, you only know how strong the current is until you try to fight against it. You only know how strong the storm is blowing until you try to come against it. If you are just going downstream, you don't feel anything. It's when you try to go upstream that you begin to struggle. C.S. Lewis um, also said this. He said, no amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready, the towels are put out, the clean clothes are in the airing cupboard. The only fatal thing is to give up 
It is when we notice the dirt that God is most present to us. It is the very sign of his presence. So my encouragement, the comfort in this passage to you and to me, is if you feel the struggle, if you feel the struggle even with habitual sin, something right is happening. You only feel the struggle if you're fighting it. If you're not fighting it, you don't feel the struggle. And this is where Paul goes in this next section where he says, I don't do what I want to do. And it doesn't make sense to me. I'm trying. I'm trying to change. I mean, at one point he cries out. Cries out and says to God in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is deep down I do. Deep down my truest self. I do love Jesus. I do love God. I don't want to do this. But there's this other self. This sin that dwells in me that's not me, but that keeps doing things. And I have trouble controlling, and I have trouble not falling into it. But what this tells us is that if you struggle, if you're not struggling with sin, you're actually digressing. If you don't feel the struggle with sin, you're digressing. But if you do, You are maturing. You're maturing as a Christian if you feel the struggle. And so we have to ask ourselves, which is your true self? What's at the deepest core of you? Is it the desire to sin? Or is it the desire to delight in God and who he is? That is what matters. So the comfort of Romans 7 is that conflict with sin and even some relapses into sin is consistent with being a growing Christian. And that we shouldn't put up fronts and act like it's not going on because every single one of us, myself included, I just got ordained this last Sunday. You think I don't still struggle deeply with temptation and sin? Then you're, you're kidding yourself. I mean, like, that's just part of it. And that's actually good that it's part of it because as that happens, we fall on Jesus we realize deeper and deeper every day how rotten we are and how beautiful Christ is. And that is how our hearts are healed. He cries out here in the very end as I wrap up. Verse 24, wretched man that I am. He gets to his point where he's just, I'm torn, I'm broken. He says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So as a Christian, we cry that out because we feel it, this intimate struggle with sin. We we, we cry out, wretched person that I am, how on earth am I going to be delivered from this body that keeps leading me into sin that I don't even want to do, but I keep doing it. So we cry that out, but even louder, we also cry out right after it, thanks be to God. So we cry, our hearts cry, wretched man that I am, But our hearts cry, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So may we land where Paul lands. May we, in our struggle with sin, in our fight with temptation, in our feeling condemned when we're not condemned, land where Paul lands in the very next verse, in Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are, as you have said in Romans 6, we are dead to sin and alive to you. And yet there is still sin that dwells in us, God. So would you not let sin have the final word over us? God, in our daily lives, would you help us to live in our justification? God, what you have been showing us this entire semester through your word, that we are declared right. We are not declared wrong. God, let our actions not dictate who we think that we are in you. But God, let who Christ is dictate who we think we are in you. And God, may you then fill us with praise and fill us with love and fill us with joy. God, as we own our weakness and we cling to you, God, help us not be a people, a community, a church that is desensitized. God, help us to cry out both that we are wretched and both that there is thanks to be given to Christ Jesus our Lord because in him there is forgiveness, there is deliverance, there is redemption and healing. Help our hearts receive that this night. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.